So welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. Um, this is Steve Edelman. And Danielle Hernandez. And we're going to try to capture the zeitgeist because, well, we're in a time of incredible change right now. And we have an interview with Aaron Graby and Richard Nix um, talking about the ESTA standards review and writing process. Um, but before we get to that, we want to just kind of contextualize where we are in American society today on June 19, 2020, which obviously is Juneteenth, and we address happy that. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. <laughs> um, happy and safe Juneteenth, hopefully. Um, but we're in a society which is incredibly stratified right now. It, the times are confusing, and and even as we talk to our friends in different parts of the country, we're experiencing things that are just wildly dissimilar. And yes. you know, the, whole, the, the whole idea that we're in the United States of America, I feel like more and more we're in a disunited state of America. And I feel this acutely as I do webinars, which I do nearly every day these days. And I'm talking to people from throughout North America. And, you know, as I sit here in Arizona, which today is trending in absolutely the yeah, worst I possible think you're direction. number one in the world. Congratulations. Uh, yes. Don't worry. I'm in South Carolina and we are hot on your tail. And, and you know, we're used to that. Um, here in Arizona, you know, we're used to having as our, our neighbors at the bottom of most charts, you know, Alabama and Mississippi. Sorry for you guys. Um, you're down with us. And South Carolina. Um, yep. You know, my, my throwaway line is we ought to change our license plates from the Grand Canyon state to the cautionary tale. Um, but I guess I, I feel that very acutely right now. And, you know, talking about reopening American society, which obviously the Event Safety Alliance is very interested in. Society is really different. Yes, it's it's interesting. It's some places are still very, very closed and you know, and I, I was talking to some uh, dance people this week, and they were talking about how they can't have 10 people in a studio yet because they're currently in New York State, and they're not allowed to have 10 people together. And I was thinking, as like if they were in South Carolina, whether, you know, setting aside whether or not they should, they could certainly do that. Uh, here in South Carolina, there are no capacity requirements on grocery stores anymore, so as many people as fit in the store can go in. And... You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm not going to get into whether or not people think that's a good idea or not. But um, our cases are going up astronomically, and it just speaks to how different people's experiences are all across the country, all at the same time. And while we're struggling with different protocols for reopening, some people are reopening before they feel like they've gotten a handle on what the science is, and other people are not able to get anywhere because they're not allowed to even have a meeting of five people yet and it's just the 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 space between those realities is, is really far yeah and it's hard to know what the right thing is to do so just before we started recording this podcast i was on a group call and the other person who did a lot of the talking um operates events in the Northeast where things are just starting to reopen. Consequently, his take was very conservative. Let's walk this very slowly. 
and the other people on the call are from other parts of the country where the risk tolerance is much higher. And what got kind of lost in the weeds, and really the reason I'm thinking about this, is the regional differences in risk tolerance, or depending on your attitude, perhaps it's really risk ignorance, um, the regional differences sometimes cloud over that certain types of events really could reopen in a relatively safe manner, even during this pandemic. And what we were talking about was events, they're, they're indoor events, but they take place in very large buildings. And the HVAC is really good. And the event is naturally dispersed. There is social distancing built into the fabric of the event. And they could reopen with certain measures to make sure that people don't like congregate in the restrooms. But even there, the restrooms are convention center restrooms. They're really big. So, so yeah, so you, you run into philosophical differences, which turn into legal differences, depending on what government entity is regulating your particular circumstance. And the only thing I could say is, you know, some, sometimes it's not risk ignorance as so much as risk acceptance. I personally have some problem with accepting that kind of risk without any mitigation because it doesn't seem reasonable to me. And I've been taught by a good lawyer friend of mine to ask reasonably under the same or other circumstances. And I, you know, to me, it doesn't seem reasonable to not wear a mask when you're out because it's an, it's accepting more risk than is necessary or practical. Um, I also think that it is impossible to keep everybody locked down indefinitely, and it is catastrophically damaging to the economy, which causes its own risks to especially the people at the lowest end of the income spectrum. You know, if, if they are either forced to work in unsafe circumstances or unable to get any income, that is not safe either. So it, it's hard to find that sweet spot. Well, and, and good for you, Danielle, for focusing on the workers. So uh, again, capturing the zeitgeist, here we are recording this on Friday morning, which is the day before the president's campaign rally scheduled for an indoor arena in Tulsa, Oklahoma tomorrow which was originally scheduled for today and got moved. And the people that I feel worst for are the people who work the BOK Center in Tulsa, the indoor arena where this rally is going to take place and where, you know, notwithstanding that, you know, the president's campaign group is, they, they say they're bringing in thousands of face coverings, it is unlikely that most people will wear them. And that's their choice, I suppose, although not the choice of any of the people that, you know, get in contact with them who are not at this rally, but the people who truly have no choice are the ones who work that arena. And, you know, that is the equation that we've been trying to avoid all along, which is having to choose between working and living. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough moment, without a doubt. Yeah. So I just hope that people are taking as many precautions as they can and that uh, those scientists who should not be listening to the podcast right now because they're working very hard on a vaccine or a treatment, I, I hope they are working very hard on a vaccine or a treatment. <laughs> 
Well, that, that that's right. So we, we don't have to belabor this point. I think probably by the time people listen to this podcast, uh, we won't have a vaccine or a cure just yet. We'll probably no. still be in the ditch in many parts of the country. Um, we will still be feckless and you know heedless of the risk in parts of the country. In other places, we will you know be just looking out at the sun, saying, "What is that shiny orb that I haven't seen in three months?" And you know, you at least, while you'll be pallid and and weak, you'll be in a healthier place. So I, I guess for me, as I sit here in Scottsdale, Arizona, which at this point is the epicenter of bad judgment and consequentially filling hospital beds, I, I feel compelled to say the things that people are being asked to do to be healthy and safe, not only themselves, but other people, are not difficult. It's not asking too much, I believe, to maintain social distancing from strangers. It's not asking too much, I believe, to wear a face covering so that you don't infect other people with your aerosolized droplets. I don't think it's asking too much to ask people to wash their hands, to do it often. I just, I don't think any of those things are difficult. I don't think there's a liberty interest in getting other people sick. I don't think there's a principle here that matters other than let's all get through this. And, yeah. and it breaks my heart that, that's, that those measures have become politicized as opposed to basically medical advice, which is kind of what it is. It, it, I, and I feel like it, it stops some people from feeling that they are in the right place to do it because they feel it's making a political statement. It's, this is not a political issue. No matter who you vote for or what you think monetary policy should be, none of those things affect your health or the health of the people around you. So, Danielle, that's, that's absolutely right. And you know, I, I certainly feel for people who are conflicted, who don't know whether they should, you know, listen to the science or, you know, just do what their neighbors are doing. There certainly is a herd mentality involved here. And I don't mean that to be pejorative. You know, the herd mentality is a real thing. But it I guess it saves people's lives a lot of time. It, it does. You know, herd yeah. mentality, you know, it, it has evolved over time with <laughs> us for a reason. But I guess this moment, as we are seeing in certain parts of the country, mine included, that the consequence of people not engaging in these not-so-difficult health and safety measures is that places are starting to reclose, is underscoring the message that we put into the beginning of the Event Safety Alliance reopening guide, which is the smaller venues are going to get the first chance to get it right. They'll be tested every single time they open their doors. And if they screw it up, they will delay reopening for everyone else. And I, I am just dismayed to see that in many parts of the country, that is precisely where we are headed. We are headed back into a place where we have to reclose and things are going to get more difficult and more delayed. Well, honestly, my fear is that things won't reclose, that things will just all stay open and so many people will get so very, very ill and so many people will die and so many hospitals will be overrun and so many hospital workers will just be devastated by the experience. It's just a it's, it's that, you know, may you live in interesting times. Well, 2020 is taking the cake. 
You bet. And that is, <laughs> that is cake that I do not want. <laughs> Pick your least favorite kind of cake. That's 2020. Yep. <laughs> With so, the carabas icing that your parents said was good for you. <laughs> and it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's still sweet. Anyway, uh, so I think we're going to put our button on this. And um, thank you for joining us for these musings. And now we're going to get back to the the main podcast where we're going to talk about standards and how important they are and how you can be involved. And and how to eventually look forward to a happier world where we're not talking about disgusting cake. So <laughs> stay, stay tuned stay for, tuned. <laughs> for a good conversation. Thank you. Welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Steve Edelman. And I'm Danielle Hernandez. Welcome to today's episode on standards. We are joined today by Aaron and Richard from ESTA. Aaron, go ahead and, and give us a little bit of an intro. Hi, Steve. Hi, Danielle. My name is Aaron Gravy. I'm the Executive Director of ESTA. Thanks for having me. And Richard? Hi, thanks for having me today. I'm Richard Nix. I'm the Assistant Technical Standards Manager for ESTA's Technical Standards Program. We are so glad to have you guys with us to help us learn what standards are and why they're important. But first of all, Erin, can you go ahead and tell us what ESTA is, in case some of our listeners aren't familiar? Sure. ESTA stands for the Entertainment Services and Technology Association. We are a membership-based trade association representing the entertainment technology industry. Uh, Our members are responsible for creating some uh, really great programs that benefit the industry, including the Technical Standards Program, which is what we're here to talk about today. Uh, But we also maintain the Entertainment Technician Certification Program, uh, which certifies uh, entertainment riggers and electricians. Um, we've got over 3,000 of those. ESTA's mission, for those who don't know, is to create a safer, stronger industry through connection, education, and empowerment. And I think that sums it up quite nicely. That's that's fabulous. And as you can tell, the ESA loves ESTA. <laughs> and we love the ESA. We have a fantastic relationship with you guys. So, Richard, what is a standard? If I were to look at a dictionary definition for a standard, I would say that it's something established by an authority or a custom or a general consent as a model or an example. And um, if I were to just simplify that, it it essentially is um, some type of a recommended practice or um, a a standard model that's been accepted by a consensus body. In some cases, the consensus body might just be the, the industry itself without ever having any organization involved. Um, it's just adopted through, um, uh, you know, osmosis, if you will. Uh, in our case, a consensus document becomes a standard because we put it through a rigorous standards development process. And I think we're going to talk about that in a little while. So, Aaron, what, what's your take on what a standard is? Uh, put very simply, I really like to use uh, John Huntington's definition of a standard, which is, When a group gets together and agrees upon a useful working practice, a protocol, a measurement, or a connection method, we call the resulting agreement a standard. Who's John Huntington? John Huntington is uh, a wizard at control networks and uh, show control methods. Uh, He's a professor at New York City College of Technology, and he also sits on one of the working groups in the technical standards program and helps draft all of the control protocols that we develop. So that's why he's actually a good source for a definition like this. Very good source, yeah. I like how he's a wizard. Uh, yeah. All right. So 
I'm going to throw this out. Why does ESTA do standards? Way back in the 70s, people suggested that it would be a good idea if our industries had standards. And up until ESTA came around, there was really no organization that had a mechanism to develop formal standards. ESTA applied and was granted a, 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 a status as an ANSI secretariat, which is to say the secretariat writes standards that then go through an ANSI accreditation process. We submitted a, a policy and procedure. It was approved by ANSI, and now all of the standards that we develop are done so by following the policies and procedures that are in, in that ANSI-approved uh, uh, procedure. So, so basically, instead of me learning how to do something from someone who learned it to do, do it from somebody else, who learned it from somebody else. We have a consensus document as to this is the way that you could or should do that as opposed to just figuring it all out, perhaps incorrectly. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, one of the reasons that, that uh, standards became such a hot topic is because the tribal knowledge was becoming so convoluted and we needed a way to partly, sort of rein that yeah. in. And partly because the technology was becoming more complicated and the, the stakes of it, the, the potential for catastrophe was, was much higher as Absolutely. the technology became more involved. So, so just to clarify, because I'm sort of the simple child in this conversation, um, are, is the idea of standards that they're supposed to replace like folk wisdom and on-the-job training that's passed from old guy to less old guy to somebody who may not be a guy um, and may be a little younger. Is that the idea? I think not. I think that uh, that that those methods of passing information uh, from one person to another, uh, promulgating information, are still valid. What the standard does is it, 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 it as the name implies, it standardizes the information that's being passed on, um, and, and it helps make our work practices more consistent, more predictable, if you will. So that's the apprentice model, where you, you learn from, you know, a more knowledgeable person. Aaron, yeah, I, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think, I think it's kind of a combination of both. Um, it's, it's because the standards are written by the people who are responsible for passing all of that word of mouth knowledge down and passing on that training. And the standard is basically a lot of those people getting together and coming up with uh, the, the sort of minimum requirement that, that would be necessary to get the job done, whatever it is, whatever that's, whatever problem that standard is trying to solve, we, we collect experts on those, on those types of problems and they get together and standardize what uh, mitigation techniques they'll use around that problem. That is a fabulous explanation. That feels like what we were all trying to say. So where can I find the standards? Let's say I'm looking for information about counterweight rigging or overhead rigging. Where, where do I find it? Uh, the easy URL that I like to hand out is tsp.esta.org slash free standards. And that's easy enough for people to remember. And you can get there very easily without going through the homepage, though we do uh, invite you to poke around on the website and plenty of valuable information there. Um, and it is not behind a paywall, as the URL implies. And you are required to enter an email address. Uh, but all of the, all the standards are free. And there's about 60 published documents there. So what are some of the topics that are covered in the standards right now? It runs the gamut. Uh, the technical standards program has nine working groups, and uh, I, I could tell you all nine of them, but let's just give some examples of rigging in general. Um, fog and smoke, 
um, is another example. Control protocols uh, for things like DMX and uh, remote device management um, over IP. Um, we have uh, the event safety working group, of course, uh, uh, certainly a, a force to be reckoned with, I think, especially now when there's so much valuable work going on. I, I love because you've got several chairs on this particular call that, you know, we're just doing a little happy dance that our listeners can't see. The, the, the Yiddish word is work felling. <laughs> um, yeah. So it sounds like if we went to the free standards that we would have a lot of great resources that might help us with our operations, with our education programs, with our day-to-day -day life in the industry. Indeed. Uh, if it's appropriate at this time, I could take something that Aaron said about how we identify a problem and then write a standard to solve that problem. In fact, that's how all of our standards begin in the development stage. Um, uh, you, you, you can see the, the wide range of topics that are covered there. Um, you could see the wide range of working groups that cover those topics. And... Um, and it, it demonstrates the resources, the horsepower that we have available to cover uh, the needs of the industry, I think. So let's, let's take an example and walk it through the process to help our listeners figure out how a standard is made. Let's start with the problem. What's the problem? The industry is concerned that all of these new trust companies are manufacturing roof systems and those roof systems are being installed all over the place in many different types of uh, venues, uh, indoor, outdoor, and um, there, there seems to be a consensus among the industry that the way that we erect these and monitor and do safe things with them uh, is not consistent. So we wanna think about writing a standard to address that issue. Okay, so what do we do? Um, fill out a form and submit it to the Technical Standards Council. The Technical Standard, now this has a clear topic that is covered by the Rigging Working Group. So this form could go straight to the Rigging Working Group. Generally, it would go to the Technical Standards Council. They would look at the, the question that's being asked, is this a problem that's viable? Can, uh, is, this, is this really a problem that we need to have a solution for? If yes, vote on it, accept it, and assign it to a working group that project is now, let's say, in our, in our uh, uh, hypothetical process, the task has now been assigned to the rigging working group. The rigging working group votes to accept the project and assigns a task group to address that project. Um, in the case of trusses and roof systems, um, we think we probably want people from, of course, the user group and the trust manufacturers group from the production industry. Um, we, we certainly want people from the engineering community to help address some of the engineering and safety things that are involved with these structures. So we're gonna go out and look for some subject matter experts and users and yes. put them together in a room and say, okay, write it down. Hmm. Or start, start writing it down? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, put them in a room, lock them away for three years, don't come out until it's finished. No, it's not. No, no, Lots it's not that of far coffee. Buried. It's not that far <laughs> if, if, if you could, though, Richard, that we, we'd probably be much more productive. <laughs> I, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, while your point is well taken, um, I find, and this is kind of a sidebar, but I do find that sometimes the 
the, the person who knows the least about the subject matter often offers the best input because they're looking at it from uneducated eyes with fresh eyes and often with a fresh idea. Oh, this is new stuff to me, but something seems logical and you haven't considered it and hear all of the subject matter experts maybe sit in a room and miss the forest for the trees. On, on, and this happens all the time. Generally speaking, yes, we want those subject matter experts in the room uh, writing, the, writing the document. So anyway, once we have, so we have all of those, the room yeah, we've got, and, and they've generated paperwork. They've, they've generated a draft document and the draft document comes up to the, to the working group. Um, and the working group looks at it and, and says, oh yeah, this is, we, we understand it. This is clear. Or they could say, well, you know, this is a dog's breakfast. Uh, we need to send it back to the task group and you, you know, you guys need to work on this point or that point. But let's assume that everything looks good coming out of the task group. Then the working group will send it out to a public review. Public review is when we advertise that the document is a draft document and it's being made available to the public for their critique. Um, and a public review is just that. We, we advertise it on our website and we advertise it through any number of publications. We tell people where to go to download those documents that are in public review and, and we do have a, our website. There is a, a portal for all of the uh, documents that we have in public review. They are available to anyone who is materially affected by the subject matter. Anyone who has uh, input um, is more than welcome to complete the public review form, submit it to us. We uh, staff, uh, Carl Ruling and I, uh, we will collate all of those comments and we'll send it to the working group for consideration. These public reviews um, usually last for 45 days. During that period of time, anybody who wants to comment, they can. At the end of the 45 days, we collate all the comments and there have been public reviews that have generated exactly zero comments, but there have been also public reviews that have generated several hundred uh, comments and so, it, so speaking from an industry insider I'm having to guess that rigging generates a lot of comments Aaron is that true do you think so yeah I mean the, the two largest working groups we have are the rigging working group and the control protocols working group and that is absolutely where we get the majority of our comments <laughs> yeah the um, it is interesting, uh, uh, and I think somebody actually made this comment recently, kind of in internal conversation about uh, about public reviews of the, the control protocol working group, because of the nature of their makeup. A lot of their public review comments come from people who are actually on that working group, whereas a lot of the comments that come from rigging working group documents come from people who are not part of the the working group. They're they're out out in the community at large, and and you know I, I'm there might be some generic explanation for that. As it simple, just has to do with how the groups work? It, it, no, it's. I think it has to do with the subject matter and where the interested parties are. I mean, it, it might be fair to say that most of the people who are interested in control protocols are actually on that control protocol working group. And, and it's a very big working group. Um, that is not to say that they're the only ones who know anything at all, um, because in the industry at large, the, the protocols are in use every day, everywhere. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So it's gone to public review. Mm -hmm. We've resolved all the comments that have come back. Yep. Now we have to vote on the comment resolutions. We end up with draft resolutions to those comments. Um, and and uh, once those are approved by the working group, and once those are approved, then the document 
presumably will have had some type of change. That's not always the case. The important criteria is if the document has had substantive changes, a should was a shell or a mandatory requirement all of a sudden became a recommendation. That's a substantive change. Um, if there are substantive changes, then the document must be sent back out to public review again. All of the commenters need to have the resolutions and the revisions sent back to them. And we ask the question, hey, you had objections and you had comments. Here's what we did with it. Are they okay with you? And if yes, thank you very much. If no, tell us what your objections are. You can comment again in the next public review. So that cycle goes through and eventually we reach a document that has been agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Then it goes. So once we've gone through one or more public reviews, some of them make it after one. Some of them have gone through as many as nine or ten. Uh, then uh, there's a motion made in the working group body to accept the document as an American national standard. In our policies and procedures, that's always done by a letter ballot. So we send a ballot out to every to all of the voting members on the working group. Uh, it's a 21-day ballot generally. And after 21 days, we collate the results. And if we meet our voting requirements for the supermajority, um, then that motion passes and it's automatically carried up to our next level. And that's at, at the technical standards council level. Um, they would be considered our oversight body uh, within the technical standards program. And the same thing happens again. It's a letter ballot. Uh, actually, at the technical standards council, they could vote at a meeting if the timing was right. But generally, it's done as a letter ballot. And that's still within ESTA? Still within ESTA. Okay. Um, and and uh, assuming that that motion carries at the Technical Standards Council level, then we internal to ESTA have yet one final uh, ballot that has to go through the executive committee. Uh, in this case, it's for four people who have to vote. Uh, um, and if, it, if that motion carries there, then it's sent to ANSI and their Board of Standards Review, then looks at all of the pathway from start to finish and all the processes and make sure they ensure that we have followed our processes. And um, assuming there are no issues, they vote to accept it. And then it becomes an ANSI standard. So I guess it's a good, it's important to note that throughout all this process, we don't have a standard. We've got a draft standard and the designation is a BSR a board of standards review document. So any document that you see on any of our websites that say BSR in front of it, that's an unapproved standard. That's a draft standard. If it is approved, it will say ANSI in front of it. So so if people have gotten lost in the weeds, the, the thing to take away from this is that a lot of work and a lot of people put their eyes on this before it becomes an ANSI standard, which means it's as vetted as it can be within our power. Like, yes. Carries a lot of weight. Richard described, you know, a long process. It takes a long time for a document to get out of the working group. Um, and it takes a long time for it to get uh, out of out of ESTA and to ANSI because of those different layers. And, and we've got those layers in place for checks and balances, really. You know, a, a lot of our documents are life safety related. Um, and, you know, we can't put something out there that's going to endanger somebody's life. And so we, we really are uh, vetting, vetting these things at the highest possible level and making sure that, um, that we're putting good information, useful information out there. Um, right. Because ultimately, you know, the reason that we're doing all of this is, 
not just so that different manufacturers' equipment will talk to each other and make things easier for setup and make things easier as far as interoperability, but we're doing it so that people, uh, and I know the ESA uh, wholeheartedly agrees with me here, so that people can go and enjoy a live performance and then go home safely and uh, come back for more is, is really what, what the point is, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And so if I could put this into sort of a timeline that's relative to, to the example that we started with, and that is uh, ANSI E1.21, the uh, temporary outdoor structures used for special events. The PIN statement, the, the, the notification that we were beginning a new standard, the very first PIN statement for that document was filed in 2000 and, in 2001. The standard was first approved in 2006. When the incident happened in Indianapolis, the standard had already been in existence for a number of years, and it's been revised three times since its first publication in 2006. So that's another uh, important point, is that the standards are living documents. They go back to review, I think, is it every three years? Is it five years? I know there's a, a regular period that they go back. We're obliged by ANSI to do something with these documents every five years, and that could be withdraw it because it's no longer useful. It could be to revise it because it needs to be updated, and that, or it could be to reaffirm because it's good as it is. But one of those three things has to happen w- within five years of the publication date of the document. Again, that's, that's a really good thing that means that the standard is still valid if it's still active. So you can use it with some degree of right but even standards that we've revised uh stay the the old versions stay on our website um and the reason for that is because uh you might have um some specifications or something like that or some guidance documents written internally for your company that specify the use of one of those standards and if it's let's say a 2008 version of the standard and you're and you're you're quoting something very specific in that 2008 edition but there's let's say a 2012 version as well um you know quoting back to that 2008 version and being able to access still access the 2008 version is very important so we leave them all up there but we make it very clear that the older versions have been superseded by the newer ones Fabulous, which is typical to other guidance documents, OSHA, for example, and there's um, even Robert's rules. Sometimes you will be using a newer or an older version. So, Steve, I'm going to take this to you from from a law perspective. What are the advantages to knowing and utilizing these standards? Well, standards aren't law, um, so let's start there. Yep. There, there. There's a progression about the enforceability of things. So the most enforceable thing is a law, uh, you know, passed by some body of elected officials. Uh, the next most enforceable thing is a regulation, which is the stuff that is written to effectuate laws, tell people how to follow a law. So those things both actually have force in a courtroom. Beyond that, what we're talking about are industry standards. And you know, an ANSI standard is an industry standard. Now, that's a very important thing, even if it doesn't carry the force of law, because under common law, so when there's not a statute on point, um, we defer to common law. And 
you know, here you should be conjuring the classic image of Steve staring at a blue man because I'm about to bust out the usual legal standard. Say it with me. Everyone has a legal duty to behave as a reasonable person. Look at this. You guys are actually mouthing it. It's fantastic. Podcast listeners, if you could see what I can see right now, it is just a beautiful thing with Danielle and Aaron and probably Richard also actually mouthing the duty of care is to behave as a reasonable person under the same or similar circumstances. Oh my God, my heart is swelling with pride. Um, so standards are really important for that. Because in order to know what a reasonable person would do under whatever circumstances, there has to be some kind of written guidance. And ideally, the written guidance has been vetted by professionals in the industry and gone through this robust, or if you're in the middle of it, you know, agonizing process of review and comment and revision and review and comment and revision, rinse, repeat until finally you get to remove the BSR at the beginning of your, of your document and replace it with ANSI, which is American National Standards Institute, by the way. Um, so written standards are really important especially in our industry, in the live event and event and entertainment technology industry, because there aren't laws, there aren't regulations, nor do we want that. And that's because elected officials, with all due respect to them, aren't generally in our industry. Um, they don't have the detailed knowledge that we do about how things work. So... The idea of being a self-regulating industry works well in our instance because we have, you know, the ESTA standards writing process. It allows this whole thing to hang together and make sense because consider the alternative. If, for example, it was just folk wisdom passed down from generation to generation, that wouldn't serve as a very robust source of what a reasonable person should do under various different circumstances. Instead, we have this really detailed process. And, you know, the fact that Richard has to take so long to go through it and use words like secretariat, which I thought was a horse. I thought it was a horse too. I was yeah. like, oh, it's yeah, more than a horse. Yeah, it right. is in fact a horse. Being from Kentucky, I know this as a fact. You all know <laughs> it because it's secretariat. My goodness, it's such a word, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, and I'm imagining like, you know, leaders of the Soviet Union banging their shoe on a table. <laughs> So, sorry, older listeners will get that joke. Um, the rest of you just look it up. Khrushchev is the answer. Um, so this whole process exists precisely because so much rides on it. Our, our existence as a self-regulating industry really depends on having a process with this many, as Aaron said, checks and balances built into it. So... You know, speaking from personal experience, as much of a pain in the ass as it is to be in the middle of it, wow, I mean, it really allows you at the end to say, this is in fact what a reasonable person should do under the circumstances addressed by this standard. And the process, as much as I hate to say it sometimes, the process itself matters. 
And and Steve, you 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 said you know standards aren't law, um, which is absolutely true. Just by existing, they are not law, but they can be adopted into law, right? Uh, and as, as a few of ESTA standards have been, um, the standard that Richard was uh, mentioning earlier, ANSI E1.21, has been adopted. This is the uh, uh, outdoor structure standard has been adopted in Kentucky State Building Code. Uh, it's been adopted in New York State Uniform Fire Prevention Code. Um, some of our hoist standards have been adopted on military bases around the world uh, and things like that. And, and, and standards are a really slow moving process, yes, uh, and, and even so in adoption, that takes even longer. Um, and that's not the ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is not to get all of our standards adopted, but by adopting our standards, uh, we're, we're, we, we gain momentum, we gain a, gain a wider audience, we gain more, uh, those standards carry more weight by, by uh, because as you said earlier, if there is no uh, regulatory body out there, somebody else is going to step in and write standards for you. So as we self-regulate, we're being recognized for the valuable work that we're putting out there by these standards and uh, being adopted into different jurisdictions, which then become law. It is illegal to erect an outdoor stage, not to ANSI E1.21 in the state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, Huzzah! <laughs> well, right. I mean, since, unfortunately, we have the example of the Indiana State Fair outdoor stage roof collapse, so e one e one E1 21. Yeah, E1.21. Yeah, that's what I was hung up on. E1.21 is a very important example because Indiana showed us how necessary it was. Um, from my standpoint as a lawyer, I think standards are particularly important as they become more widely circulated because the whole idea from my standpoint is I don't especially care if a legislature enacts them or not, although certainly that's valuable and it makes it easier. But really, my goal is to have more and more and more people use the standard, apply the standard, because then events are run more safely. Things go better. There are fewer problems there. There won't be another, God forbid, Indiana State fair outdoor stage roof collapse because more people will follow the standard that applies. So to yeah. me, that's, that's the real value of this process. Right. It's, it's, it's such robust guidance and has been you know, incubating for so long that it has wide currency once it does come out. So just like um, if you've ever sat through an OSHA class and you're like, why are they so very specific about that particular thing, standards are written, unfortunately, basically in blood. You know, if the, the reason people are writing these things is because something happened or almost happened and we want to prevent it from ever happening again, um, which is why the process is so robust and why people get involved. So happy listeners out there with a little bit of extra free time all of a sudden who now want to help save the world and invoke change and safety in the world in the event industry. Aaron, how can they get involved in the standards writing process? Uh, there are multiple ways to be involved and you can go to tsp.esta.org slash get involved. And on that webpage, you will find uh, the, the, the various ways that you can, can get involved with the technical standards program. Uh, for example, if you have some expert knowledge and want to join one of the groups, you may do so. 
any one of the nine working groups that are there, fill out an application, uh, send that to uh, Richard and Carl at standards at ESTA.org, and they'll get you signed up. Um, if you have a problem and you think uh, a standard would ameliorate your problem, you may download a project request form there and submit that to Carl and Richard, again, uh, for distribution to the proper channels for approval. Um, another way you can get involved is to become an investor in innovation. Our investors in innovation are companies and individuals who uh, help keep the program running. We are a nonprofit. Uh, trade association and we rely almost exclusively on membership dues and uh, additional support to to help keep the technical standards program running do you have to be a subject matter expert to be involved no any no absolutely not uh, if you have any any uh, materially uh, material interest in the subject matter you may join the the working group absolutely you don't have to be a subject matter expert um, there are different levels of involvement. You can be an observer, you can be a voter. Uh, and uh, so as an observer, you can kind of sit on the, on the sidelines and, and take a look at what's going on and, and listen uh, and interject if you've got something to say. And a lot of people do that at first before they become a voter uh, so that they kind of get their feet wet and see what the process is all about and how it works. Um, because as we just said, it's long and complicated and not something you can easily pick up even in just a few meetings. Uh, and and the, the groups do get together four times a year. Uh, so if you want to be on one of those working groups, uh, they, they get together uh, usually four times a year, roughly quarterly. Uh, the meetings are available online, so you don't have to be physically present. Uh, of course, physically present when we can do so, we will. Um, but for now, everything is exclusively online. Yeah, I, I do miss the in-present, but the the uh, fact that we can meet online is a nice accommodation. To we can still get our circumstances. Work yes. Yeah. I, I'd like to add something, um, especially in the middle of all of the the words like long and complicated process. Um, I've been personally involved in development of standards since uh, the, the mid 80s. I've been trying to help make the industry a better, safer place since before the technical standards program was around. The 372 people that we currently have on roster are there because they want to be there. And those people have helped change the face of our industry. And if you want to do that, this is how you can do it, period. Full stop. Yeah, now I'm all like overcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the event safety group's um, standards is going to be hopefully becoming an ANSI standard really soon. And once that standard is published and official, we will have a podcast specifically talking about it. And then you guys can all say, wow, it went through all that to get to here. Oh, can I say that the Event Safety Working Group already has one published standard? And I don't mind telling you that the ES 1.19 structures document might be placed in front of the International Fire Code for inclusion in the Fire Code. Awesome. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not making a prediction. I'm just saying the opportunity is there. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. That's wonderful. So what is coming up with the standards program? Oh, goodness. It, I'm particularly excited about the work of the Event Safety Working Group. We have ongoing draft standards for, as you mentioned, crowd, uh, crowd management, uh, security, medical, electrical, uh, weather, um, fire safety, 
uh, I, I mean, it's a bigger list. <laughs> Communications. These documents are very close to going out to first public review. Well, with exception of the crowd management, it's about ready to be approved. Uh, yes, and fingers crossed for that. But all of those other documents that I mentioned are very, very close to first public review. So this will be an opportunity for for the interested parties outside of the working group, uh, the industry at large, to get a look at what the working group is doing for the industry and to uh, comment on what they think is good, bad, or indifferent, progress or not. Well, so we're going to come to the end of our discussion on standards. I'm going to do a little round robin. Erin, uh, any final thoughts? Um, well, thank you both uh, for putting this together. Thanks, Jacob, for doing all the editing in the background there. Um, uh, I suppose I'd like to say congratulations to us all, the ESA and ESTA. Um, the anniversary of when we made the agreement to do the event safety working group, to put that thing together, uh, is coming up next month. It'll be four years since we made that agreement. Uh, wow. if, you were, if, if, <laughs> If those of you who do not know, it was made during NADIAC 2016. Um, there was a dinner at Sardi's in which I sat at a table with Don Cooper and Jim Digby. I missed uh, a dinner at Sardi's? Yes, you did. You did. Yeah. And, uh, and, and at, that, at that dinner, uh, I had never met Don Cooper. Uh, I did not know his background or his history, uh, but I approached him and Digby, and Digby uh, about... Uh, bringing the, the, the event safety guide over and, and, you know, let's work on a revision too and make it into, uh, you know, a suite of American national standards. And um, Jim, Dig uh, I'm sorry, Don Cooper has a lot of experience writing standards. And um, so he and I were sort of talking back and forth about, uh, you know, how can we really do this? And he said, well, I don't, I don't really think it's, it's possible. And I, and I very, very naively sort of insulted him and his ability to write standards. And I think it was sort of in that moment that he said, okay, maybe there's something to look at here. And, uh, and it was the very next day that we all sat, sat down together and hammered out the agreement. And uh, I'm very pleased with the progress that the group has made. Um, it, as slow going as it is, we will have a suite of American national standards to reflect version two of that guide. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> you, you, you grabbed the bull by the horns and <laughs> said, we're going to do this. And you brought everybody along. Danielle just called Don Cooper a bull. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I did not meet. No. This is how rumors get started, guys. Um, Don Cooper, this is live? executive no, no. director. <laughs> I'm not sure he listens to the podcast, <laughs> but I'm sure someone will send him this one. <laughs> Don just sent me a text. Yes, I'm listening. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Keep it in. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, Richard, any final, any final thoughts? Yeah, it's. Um, Thanks again for the opportunity uh, for us to talk about these standards. Um, we're always looking for new input uh, from the industry, and I encourage people who want to make a difference to come and get involved because it is very important work. And yes, you can make a difference. And this is just one of many ways that you can help make a difference to change your industry for the better. So get involved. And thanks, everyone. Thank you. Steve? Yeah, I I'm going to make a quick plug for people who are in who don't consider themselves to be experts in 
whatever particular standards writing group that they're in. Um, give it a shot anyway. Um, from my perspective, having led the crowd management task group, I know that I personally really benefited from several people who do not do a ton of crowd management, but they ask really good questions, really incisive questions. And the fact that they weren't experienced crowd managers caused them to question some of the foundational things that we just brushed past because of course we know that. Everybody knows this stuff. They forced us to think through everything and actually say it from the beginning. And that's really valuable. So I guess my, my plug is not only for people who consider themselves subject matter experts to get involved in writing the standards that affect our work, but even for people who just wanna know how the sausage is made, you have a valuable role in checking our instinct to just charge into you know the one question that we find most compelling make us explain everything that's mm. super important in this process mm-hmm. and those people that that you're inviting there to do that they're going to be the future leaders they're going to be the ones that are that are overseeing the work of those working groups in you know in the next generation in the next iteration come play Come play. We, we want you to come play. And what's the, what's the website? Uh, tsp.esta.org is the homepage. Uh, tsp.esta.org slash get involved is where you can download a working group application or find out about uh, the uh, investors in innovation and project request form. Awesome. Well, thank you to Esta. Thank you to Richard and Aaron for joining us today. After this, we're going to have a, a new segment. And I'm going to introduce this segment by saying, you know, I keep requesting questions from the world, and I finally got one. So if you have a question that you'd like answered, info at eventsafetyalliance.org. If you put podcast question in the subject line, that will help Jacob find it a little bit easier. Um, or you can send it to us on any of our social media channels. Or if you know us personally, you can do it that way. So the question is for Steve. So here's the question I got, Steve. So as the science is evolving, and we're getting new information on things like the efficacy of masks, which apparently is fabulous. Uh, So everybody wear your mask when you're out um, and stay six feet apart. The more safety measures you can put in place, the better. And that relates to the question, have we made any modifications to our original guidance based on this new information and the fact that many people may be carriers and not have a temperature? So does that affect our temperature check programs? So the the answer to those questions is they are important developments. We did not anticipate those specific developments, but we definitely anticipated that the state of our knowledge of COVID-19 would change over time. Um, You know, it, it is, after all, a global pandemic that we're just grappling with now for the first time ever. Um, and when I say we, I God knows, do not mean the Event Safety Alliance or ESTA. I mean, like... <laughs> the you know, world. Right, the world. The pan part of pandemic. Right, right. <laughs> the World Health Organization, the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They're the smart kids dealing with the epidemiological evidence and data. Anyway... Within ESA and our Event Safety Alliance reopening guide, we certainly anticipated that the science would evolve and that we would learn new things. So regarding checking temperature at points of ingress, I believe we knew even 
on May 11, when we released the reopening guide, that that was not a perfect choice. Um, that you know, using a thermal scanner and having a clipboard with questions asking whether you you know were in close contact with someone who had recently suffered from COVID-19, we knew that that was not perfect. Um, we knew even on May 11 that some percentage of people would be asymptomatic carriers. As it turns out, the current data, so what's today's date? It is June it is 19th. Yes, it is Juneteenth. That's right. And But let me finish answering this question first, and then we should contextualize this whole conversation. Um, we knew even when we came out with the reopening guide in its first version that checking temperature was important but imperfect. And although we didn't expressly write this in the reopening guide, I know I've said it on many webinars, which is this is no time to be a purist. This is a time to do everything that we can reasonably do, knowing that some things won't work as well as others, but cumulatively, everything that you do that helps even a little improves your odds. And given that we're talking about a global pandemic, improving the odds is really the end game. You're not going to come up with a solution unless, podcast listener, you happen to work for the World Health Organization or the CDC. And if you, uh, if you do, get the hell off this podcast. Go back to work. You have something more important to do. You know, thanks Isn't for your patience. While they're working, in which case, thank you no. so much for your efforts. Titrate whatever it is that you're doing without having us in your head. So <laughs> we knew that temperature checking was imperfect. Nonetheless, it's better than doing nothing. Face coverings. We knew that face coverings were important. We have quite a lot of guidance recommending not only wearing face coverings, but who should wear them, back of house and front of house. And we devoted an entire section of the reopening guide to trying to convince patrons that they should participate in their own health and safety. So we knew that face coverings were important. We did not know how important. And the latest information, again, care of the smart epidemiologists who are not on this podcast, I hope, is face coverings are really good. They're, they're actually very important. And that is particularly important in the context of what we currently know, which includes we were, when we came out with the reopening guide, we were very concerned about high touch surfaces and the transmissibility of COVID-19 germs, even on inert surfaces like the table that I'm looking at right now. It turns out, as of what we currently believe right now on Juneteenth, that high touch surfaces are not nearly the problem that we thought they were. And so our knowledge evolves but as it turns out, we were pretty good at writing broad enough guidance so that, yes, we anticipated face coverings were good. We didn't know how good, but they're still good. And what we recommend is wear them. Wear them as much as possible because they're good. Um, as for temperature checking, turns out it's not as useful as we thought, but it's still useful. You should do it because it improves your odds. It's part of the risk mitigation suite of options. And really the whole reopening guide is to help you make reasonable decisions under your own circumstances, to choose from the long menu of options, choose the ones that make the most sense under your circumstances. I contend that even with what we now know about 
high touch surfaces and temperature checking and face coverings that everything that we said in the reopening guide applies no less now than it does before. Just the, you know, the nuances are perhaps different. The points of emphasis are different. But that's why we're doing podcasts and webinars and speaking every day, because we are trying to capture the zeitgeist. And, you know, that actually brings us back to Juneteenth. So if I may segue for just a moment, um, even being in crowds, while we know that that is a violation of social distancing, there too, there are reasonable risk mitigation measures. So. It's important for people to be able to take to the streets to register their disapproval of systemic racism. That's important. And particularly on Juneteenth, it's important to note that. Happily, the guidance that we've pushed out for events is broad because the term event is broad and it includes and fully encompasses you know, street demonstrations where wearing face coverings is important. And I'm actually very pleased, I take no credit for this whatsoever, but I'm very pleased that in the pictures that I see of street demonstrations protesting systemic racism, most people who are engaged in the activity, the protest activity, do seem to be wearing face coverings. Now, whether that's COVID-19 protection or because they don't want to breathe in tear gas, it's a good idea either way. And, and to me, that's consistent with ESA's general message, which is when you're in a risky situation, do not say, well, something's not quite good enough, so we're not gonna do it at all. No, it's no time to be a purist. Wear a face covering because it's better than not. Social distancing is better than, than not social distancing, but sometimes you simply have to assemble in groups, assembling in groups outdoors where there's God's natural HVAC is better than doing so indoors. So all of this is, it's part of risk mitigation, and this is what we stand for. So uh, no, I don't think that we need to update the Event Safety Alliance reopening guide for these reasons. We are in fact updating it because we're trying to cover turf that we didn't cover the first time. So happy Juneteenth, everybody. So if you have a question you'd like to get answered, again, info at eventsafetyalliance.org. And if you put podcast question in the subject line, that will help Jake about a lot to get it to us. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today on Juneteenth. And for your interest in the standards program, please think about getting involved and stay safe, everybody. 